I would uh, like to read a passage of scripture to get us started this evening on the study. Um, you can turn your Bibles to Job 28. Uh, we covered Job this last week. Brett did a great job uh, covering that for Route 66, our Grace Bible Hour. And uh, in Job, the book of Job, is this beautiful portrayal of the value of wisdom and uh, talking about where to find it. Here it says in Job 28, this is Job speaking, Surely there is a mine for silver and a place that they, uh, a place for gold that they refine. He's talking about uh, mining, the whole mining operation here. Iron is taken out of the earth. Copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They're forgotten by travelers. They, that is the miners, they hang in the air. Far away from mankind, they swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden on it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns the mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the hand of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. The sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its, as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir or in precious onyx or sapphire. sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where, then, does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Isn't that good? I just love that portrayal of wisdom. And it's, um, it's in the Proverbs, actually, uh, that you can find wisdom being more valuable than hidden treasure, rubies, jewels, gold, all that, which, uh, by the way, as this is uh, uh, painting a picture of here in Job 28, all of that, those mineral, those, those uh, metals from the earth have to be mined. It takes great effort and even danger to go and find 
gold and onyx and sapphires, all of that, you have to get down underneath the earth, places where no proud animal has ever been, never seen. And yet man has the capacity to dig down into the earth, even doing very, very dangerous work, and yet can't find wisdom there. And our effort to find wisdom should be akin to the effort that a miner puts into digging the, the metals out of the earth, because it's far more precious than any of those metals. At the very end of it, it's something, uh, what, what's required to gain wisdom is something that is impossible for us to generate on our own, isn't it? It's the fear of the Lord. That's something that only God can give. So, we can add Job 28, uh, what is it, 28, we can add that to our list, a growing list of verses that describe the true starting point for evangelism, right? So, what are those, so far we have three verses, what are they? Anybody know? Two are, in, two are in Proverbs and one's now here, right? So what are the Proverbs? Proverbs? Proverbs 9 verse 10. 9 verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. What's another one? Um, what? One. Proverbs 1 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And now here, Job 28, 28, God said, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So write those down, memorize them, and think about them every time you, uh, every, think about them all the time, okay? But think about them especially when you get into a conversation with an unbeliever and realize that that is your start, starting point for that conversation, that you must fear the Lord. And it also has to be the starting point for that unbeliever to understand anything about the gospel. And so we're utterly dependent on God, aren't we? Last time, uh, just by way of review, Last time we got an expose of the heart of unbelief, we looked at uh, Psalm 14, we looked at Psalm 1, we looked at uh, Romans 1, Romans 3, and hopefully you have come to see why the fear of the Lord must be the starting point for evangelism. It's also the starting point for the unbeliever to understand and embrace the gospel. The fear of the Lord um, is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom, and so what is the gospel if it's not knowledge and wisdom? Right? Um, and it's not the very wisdom and power of God. Paul told the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, 23 to 24, he said, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, that's us, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, what is he? The power of God and the wisdom of God. That's Paul's argument in the first chapters of that letter. He's trying to help the Corinthian believers to stop being so enamored with the world and with the world's wisdom. He's trying to get that is that is the part of their folly is because they want to hear things from the apostle just like they're hearing in the world. They want to uh, they want to rejoice in a in a in a man centered kind of a wisdom. And he says, I when I came to you, I decided not to be anything like that. I want it to be something completely different, to be completely unique. So he calls them to look to, to God's revelation of Christ and the gospel as the true and the only wisdom. So it's the wisdom, Job uh, 28, 21, that's hidden from the eyes of all the living and concealed from the birds of the air. Only God understands the way to it in Job 28, 23, and only he knows its place. 
Therefore, we conduct ourselves in the fear of the Lord. Job 28, 28, Proverbs 1, 7, Proverbs 9, 10, other verses as well. And in doing so, when we conduct ourselves in the fear of the Lord, and when we expect that the only way that the unbeliever is going to listen and understand and agree and embrace is if they are regenerated by this Holy Spirit, and they also come to a place of the fear of the Lord, when we think that way, we demonstrate our allegiance to God first. Our loyalty is to Him. And when we do that, we become instruments in the hands of the Holy Spirit. Through us, as we proclaim the word that He authored, the Spirit is going to accomplish in and through us His convicting work, His persuading work, His regenerating work. Through us, He's going to produce in other people the fear of the Lord, which is the immediate uh, fruit of regeneration. People are regenerated to saving faith. They initially, initially it's to embrace the gospel. And then after that, it's to grow in an increasing understanding of the wisdom and power of God in the gospel in all of its fullness. That is all the work of God. And we can be a part of it. We can be uh, a part of that work. So we've, we've talked about the fear of the Lord being the starting point of wisdom. We've also talked about the verses that outline our twofold apologetic approach, Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Can anybody quote those, like a good Awana, a Sparky or whatever, whatever you guys are, Cubbies or, yeah, Brett. Is that the one, uh, answer a fool according to his folly, and don't, don't answer a fool according to Yeah, the first, the, the first, re just reverse it. So don't answer a fool according to his folly. Why? Lest you be like him. So don't answer a fool lest you be like him, you know, in his way and according to folly. But answer a fool as his falling deserves, lest what? He become wise in his own eyes, lest you steal him in his unbelief, right? So we don't, we don't want to reason. The first part of that, that prohibition, don't answer a fool according to his folly or in the same manner as his folly. Don't you be foolish in your reasoning and thinking like him, lest you also be like him. That prohibition is that we don't want to reason like an unbeliever or let his reasoning set the ground rules for the dialogue we're going to have for him, okay? We do not accept his ground rules. Instead, we're going to deconstruct his worldview. We're going to demonstrate, demonstrate how it fails to provide those preconditions of intelligibility we were talking about. Now, back to what we learned last week about the nature of unbelief. We talked about this from the Psalms, from, the, uh, from Paul and Romans. Here's the question for you just to get us started. Would you say the unbeliever is neutral in his reasoning? If yes, how is he neutral in his reasoning? Or if no, why would you say not? Is he neutral? Yes or no? No. 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 Anybody say yes? He's neutral? Just an objective seeker of truth, just like you? No? Nobody wants to take that bait? Is there anybody who's, raise your hand if you're secretly hiding the answer yes in your heart. <laughs> Sometimes I get people with that. It seems like you want to argue for that. It's like you just No. no. Uh, that would make me a high school teacher. Um, this case, so if you're saying no, they're not neutral, why do you say that? Why do, you, why do you say that? You, you all have with one voice, as a giant chorus, a mighty chorus said, no, not neutral. Okay, back that up. There's a very oh, go ahead. objective to the truth. They don't like it. You can tell. As in they object to the truth. Yeah, 
know. They've already objected to the truth. Yeah, they, don't, they don't like it. They don't like being told that they're wrong. And even if, even if it isn't this, even if they're told they're wrong about something else, they still fight back against it. And once you get into this, it's very fierce against it. So it's like... Okay. All right. So you you're you're saying no, they're not neutral because based based on your experience, you've seen this that they uh, they've they've rejected it. They fight against it. Once you get biblical on them, oh man, then the claws come out, right? Yeah. They don't like that at all. Okay. Good. Yes, they're, Lisa. Their father's Satan, so they can't be neutral. Whoa, man! Did you hear that? <laughs> Very strong. Their father is Satan, so they cannot be neutral. That's good. Jesus says you're of your you're of your father the devil, and he was a liar from the beginning, just like you. Try that in your next conversation. <laughs> Recommend you be a little don't don't do that. Just for the record, <laughs> Jesus could do it. He saw right through. Uh, Brett. I think you had your hand raised. Romans 1, or like in Proverbs, it says the wicked hate the righteous, and the righteous hate the wicked. Okay, so there's this uh, antipathy between the righteous and the wicked. There are two sides of humanity, the righteous, the wicked, the believer, the unbeliever, children of God, children of Satan, children of the devil. So uh, you're either on one side or the other, whether that person realizes it or not. Yeah, Romans right? 3 says no one seeks God. No one seeks God. Okay, good. <clears throat> Chuck. They love sin and not God. They love sin and not God. <sighs> really? That sweet, cat-loving, 80-year-old yep. lady living next door to you? Yes. She's out there shoveling your walk before you even get up, and you're going to say <laughs> she loves her sin more than she loves God. Chuck. <laughs> How do you know that? They're without excuse. Okay. All right. So they're without excuse. And so the fundamental uh, problem with that Mormon lady is she rejects the true God. She's worshiping an idol. No, so no matter how sweet she comes across, and we don't want to say she's not being sweet. She is sweet. It's wonderful she's shoveling your driveway at 3 in the morning, Chuck. But if she's an idolater, she's set herself at odds with the God of the universe. Where's our loyalty lie? It's a hard reality, isn't it? There was another hand. I'm going to, um, okay, Daniel, and then I'm going to come here, uh, here, and then to you, and we'll stop with Ellen. Uh, so I think Matthew 12, 30 applies when it says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Yeah, that's good. That's a really, yeah, that makes it clear, doesn't it? Jesus is like that when he speaks. It's either, you're either here or there. You're either this or that. Very black and white. Very black and white. Nicholas. Um, I was just going to say, I had that philosophy professor uh, at Ames, and they really, philosophy people really exemplify that neutrality, <laughs> that so, supposed neutrality. And um, they really seem to be genuinely seeking truth, and they're trying to examine all the angles and all the religions and worldviews. But when you really when you really press them on things like morality, there are certain things God has wired us with that we really can't escape. That's and right. It's, it becomes clear. Right. So, so there is, um, we'll come back to that comment in just, just a second, but there is a pretended neutrality on the outside. 
And, and all you need to do to disrupt that little pretense of neutrality, this, this uh, veneer, I should say, of neutrality, is start to press them with moral responsibility and accountability. All of a sudden, you'll see the gloves come off. Ellen? There is no such thing as neutral. That's right. If you're not going forward, you're going backward. And if you stop for one minute, one second, and physics proves this, you're going to go backward. Okay. So there's no such thing as neutral. There is no such thing as neutral. So this is a very important, what she just said, that there is no such thing as neutral. We need to think in terms of the myth of neutrality. It's a myth. It's, it's not a real thing. Okay? To say that, to, for someone to say or present themselves as neutral is not true. It's a myth. Whenever you hear that, it is a myth. Okay? People present themselves as neutral. It's true. They do. And they want you to think that they're neutral. Um, but they're not. They're not at all neutral. As we saw from Psalm 14, 1 to 4, a few of those verses were repeated then in Romans chapter 3, 10 to 18. That indictment was based on the condemn condemnation of all sinners, and I think Chuck was bringing this out, all sinners in Romans 1, 18 to 23. The answer is no. The unbeliever is not neutral in his thinking because his reasoning is always in willful rebellion against God. He is actively, and the verb there is an active verb, he's suppressing the truth in sin. He loves his sin, he's suppressing the truth in his unrighteousness, and he's refusing his accountability to God. That is not neutrality. That is a commitment, a pre-commitment to a certain position. He's demonstrating that by suppressing the truth. So then, they go on in their folly by suppressing the truth that they know. Romans 1.18, they deny what they clearly perceive. So that, again, shows a pre-commitment, something that's driving them. They deny what they clearly perceive, verses 19 and 20 in Romans 1. They refuse to honor God and give thanks, even though God is the source and the giver of everything that they have. They refuse to honor him. They refuse to give thanks. That is foolish thinking, and that leads to further futility and darkness in verse 21, increasingly degraded forms of idolatry, verse 22, even perversion, verses 24 to 28. So fools are foolish. They demonstrate their folly because they know their creator. And yet they choose to reject him and replace him with the worship of the creature. So their blindness, their darkness is not innocent. It's not excusable. It's a willful blindness. And that's the very essence of folly. They are morally committed to their rebellion and unbelief. Okay, so do not, and I'm not saying be unkind in your thinking, but do not let them off the hook in your thinking. You can't. Why? Because if you let them off the hook, you're just, you're just erasing any platform for bringing them the gospel. Okay, you need to bring them the gospel. They need to see that they are morally committed to their rebellion and unbelief. So if that's the case, why do you think that the unbeliever presents himself or herself as a neutral seeker of truth, especially as you get into the philosophy class? Why, why do they want to put, get, why, do, why does the unbeliever want you to think that he or she is neutral, objective? Have you ever, have you ever, anybody noticed this phenomenon? Have you ever seen this? Okay, let's start with Wes out there. Well, I, I think the whole idea is, it's, it's, like you said, it's a myth. It's man-created which means it's the standard is by man. And if we get into that, we talked about that before, where at, just like the verse says about the folly, 
we're giving them the, 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 the wrong ground to stand on. Okay. All right. Good. Giving them, we're giving them the wrong ground to, to stand on. And it's the wrong ground because if we go back to the very moment of creation, who was there at that moment? God. Everything that's come out is God or God's world. It's God's creation. It's God's work. So it's his rules. It's his laws. It's his thoughts. It's his mind to to pretend that you can stand apart from that and somehow be neutral apart from God is basically taking the side of unbelief. It's basically to say, I reject that. I'm going to, I'm going to see myself as above my creator, which is exactly what Satan tempted them to do, to see themselves as above their creator and able to make judgments against him for against. There was another hand over here. Was it Brett? Yeah, just uh, I think it might be partly cultural too, because like in this culture, neutrality is honored, and um, you definitely want to appear neutral, um, because otherwise nobody will really give you any credence. Okay. But in like an Islamic culture, authority is um, honored, and so you don't want to appear neutral as a Muslim. And like if you ever debate a Muslim, they they don't care if they're not neutral. They, to them, you know they. They're following the authority of something that was dictated to them, and they could care less if they appear neutral. In fact, they kind of despise our need for neutrality. Right. So there's a there's a Western sense of neutrality, but we're actually going to get to what makes a Muslim not virtuous, actually, in that stance. Yeah. And we see that we're actually we and Muslims, whether in the secularized West or the uh, radicalized Middle East. Um, we're on the same ground. We're doing the exact same thing. So all, all unbelief is of the same stuff. Uh, there was another hand, I think, a, yeah, kind of a in, incognito. <laughs> I'm not sure if I want him to call on me, kind of a hand. Go ahead, Leanna. Um, it's, a lot of it seems to be based in today's dislike for intolerance, because Christianity is not tolerant. Let's to be perfectly honest, it doesn't tolerate homosexuality. It doesn't tolerate the things that are really popular right now, because mm -hmm. those are all sins, and anything sin-based, we can't. But right. if you appear as you're, as if you're intolerant, then you suddenly are a pariah. Yeah. Okay. So, so we as Christians, we are morally committed to the truth of the Bible, which means we cannot be indifferent or celebrate or in any other way affirm. Uh, sin. Okay. Now I just, I will say just to kind of add on to your comment that we are pretty in some senses tolerant. I mean, we're not stoning people who are sinners, are we? No. Take them to a Muslim context and put them in the caliphate of ISIS and let them try to live and parade their sin and call for celebration from everybody around them. They'll find themselves thrown off a cliff or beheaded or something like that. So there is a there is something about um, the Christian worldview that is quite tolerant. It's, it's, um, we understand that it's, this is a, a, a worldview that's based on the Christian conscience or the conscience of the, of the individual. So we truly do see free will in people. And we realize that those people need to come to an understanding of the truth on their own, apart from coercion. We, we let them live according to their conscience. So we're not killing people in this society. 
So we're quite actually the only basis for true tolerance and toleration in this in this culture is a Christian worldview. And it's actually a great starting point for a conversation with talking about tolerance. But we we don't tolerate in the sense of approving or affirming sin. And that becomes that becomes uh, the, the moral sticking point for people. We actually we actually have police officers, you know, who protect the rights of you and me and also um, people who are living in, in forms of perversion. You know, we, they protect them all. That's that's quite tolerant. But that is all based on a Christian worldview. It's not based on any other worldview, especially a secular one. Um, so just why do you think I want to come back to you? You said people want to appear tolerant. They want to appear. Um, you, you said uh, that this is really a, a kind of part of the secularized West, that they want to appear tolerant. True. So we're living in the secularized West. So why do you think that it's so important to this unbeliever who is in rebellion against God? And when they're talking to you or other people, they want to appear they want, to, they want to think of themselves as neutral and objective, and they want to appear that way. Why do you think that is, Jason? If they're neutral, then they can say, well, if you're right, I can live a good life, and I can go to heaven. It, it feeds the works-based, I can go to heaven. Yeah, um, so it could feed a works-based, I can go to heaven based on my own... Um, on my, on my what? Goodness. Yeah, on my own goodness. So they're, they're basically trying to, they're saying, they're presenting themselves as finding a way to a good path, to a good end, through, um, through their own goodness. There's a, there's a sense of pietism in their thinking. It's interesting because it's like a, a secular form of pietism, but it's in the, it's in the air we breathe. Um, so there's something else I want to say on that in just a second. Yeah, Stuart. If they're neutral, they're not accountable. Yes. They're totally to anything. I'm in the neutral. Everything's right. Okay. So if they're neutral, they're not accountable. Good. Okay. So um, so nothing's commanding their conscience, they think. Neutrality takes away the Bible. And they're trying to get away from that because that frightens them. And, and of all of the things we have, that's the one thing that does not allow neutrality. And so that threatens them, and they want to get rid of that. And so by saying, I'm neutral, that's trying to lead us into not um, determining the, the grounds of the, okay. the conversation or whatever. Okay, so again, it's kind of back to, right. uh, back to the, the shirking off of accountability and responsibility to give an answer to God. Right. Okay, so yeah, uh, I saw one more hand. Yes, Emily. I think maybe it's pride. And the fact that you can't see the evil in your heart if you aren't saved, you don't have a new heart. So Good. unless you are humble, which comes with a new heart, you can't see your own sin. And you don't really think it's bad. Okay, good. So this is a pride, great comment. So it's a, talking about the blinding effect of pride, that you see yourself in a different light than you actually are. There's a blindness. And, and we said it's a willful blindness. The pride, though, let's take this comment, combine it here with a couple other things. This, this pretended neutrality, this is a subtle way of shifting the accountability from themselves to God. To say, it's really your fault that you haven't made it clear enough to me. Um, 
they know the truth about God because God plainly revealed it to them. So they want to shift the blame. Unbelievers, well, and we all have this in us, don't we? We're blame shifters. Um, have somebody accuse you of something and you'll find out how quickly you want to shift the blame. You want to, well, you, you know, you do that too. You know, it's like, it's like as soon, as soon as something comes your way, boom, you're trying to reverse it and throw it on the other person. We're blame shifters. And that's the way they, they are. They want to shift accountability from themselves and shift the blame from themselves to God. It's as if they're saying, look, I'm just, I'm just neutral on this. I'm just objective. I am fully willing and ready to change my mind. But the evidence just isn't compelling enough. I just haven't been convinced. There's just not, I mean, there's just so much out there in science and things like that that I find more compelling. You know, and if God were really God, um, he'd make himself clearer. But that's not what God says, is it? God says, I've made myself plain to you so that you're without excuse. Now, when you hear the this pretended neutrality of the unbeliever. When you hear that, those kind of comments and you hear that kind of thinking coming at you, whether it's blame shifting, whether it's, uh, hey, I'm just a humble seeker of truth and all that kind of stuff. Just, I'm just like you, just want to know the truth and humbly seek it. I just, I'm just not finding the evidence compelling, all that kind of stuff. What does that demonstrate to you? What does their pretended neutrality demonstrate to you? They both said, they both said, their stupidity. <laughs> it demonstrates to you that they're stupid. <laughs> and you're, you're right in the middle of that, aren't yeah, you? Right <laughs> Smack in the middle. I was going to go with willful unbelief. They don't, they don't think because they don't think. They don't think. Like, there's so much that. So it's kind of like they don't think. Just like, no <laughs> It's yeah. willful unbelief. It is willful unbelief. So it's showing, it's, it's demonstrating to you some, there's something willful going on, right? right. Yeah, good. The stupidity, stupidity is kind of a symptom of the, the earlier pride, the earlier will. Will, yes. Right. I just also, I, I guess, you know, really, they, they kind of understand that they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness would be a weak point in their argument. You know, yes, and, and that would not that would not really help them. You know, um, and so that doesn't help them. That's yeah, right. So, so they 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 kind of. I was just thinking they are kind of committed to looking neutral, especially the the more they've thought through it. You know, like if you talk to you know somebody who hadn't thought a lot about those things, they might not be so committed to appearing neutral. Um, but but somebody that's really thought through it, they've kind of figured out that. Their prior commitment to sin is, is a pretty big weak point in their, in their overall. Okay, argument. perfect. So their prior commitment to sin, they know that that's a weak point in their argument. And so they pretend this outward neutrality with you. Yeah. They don't come across and tell you what they really think, which is something like this. The reason I reject your God and your Bible is that I love my sin and I don't want to change. Right. <laughs> your, your own Bible tells you about me. It says in John 3:19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. That's me. They don't say that. And what it shows you when they try to pretend this neutrality on the surface is that there is a conflict of conscience. Because if they had no conflict of conscience, they would just come right out with it and say, what you call sin, I love, and I want more of it. Yeah. And I'm really not, I have no intention of changing. 
that's that's like blowing the cover off their whole neutrality. It reveals their pre-commitments. Scotty. I was just going to say that it's interesting because after they realize that they can't really fight it out and they, you know, come to the just the point that they like their sin and they just appeal to their senses, like what you said earlier. Right. And that because that's the only thing that they can appeal to is their self. Right. Right. Yes. And we'll get to that. You're actually anticipating something in my notes here. Good. So I love that. Yeah, Wes. Just a question. Are, are you going to, and I don't want you to jump ahead, obviously, but get to a point where when people do say exactly that and they say, I don't like that idea because I don't want to be that accountable. I like my sinful life. Mm -hmm. That's why I don't like Christianity. That's why I don't like to go to church with you. What you do with those people or how you... Um, evangelize, I guess, if you will, with those people? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the, what's required is that they come to the fear of the Lord. And so what you have to do, and I, I have had these conversations where they eventually, eventually the, the, the masquerade, they drop it, the facade comes down, and they say, okay, you got me. I love sin. And I know, I, I, I sense what you're saying is right. I've actually had this happen. And I, I sense what you're saying is right. I just, don't, I just don't want this. And I'm really not that scared of God or hell or anything else. It's just, it's just not there. And so what you have to do at that point is warn them of the consequences. You just have to, you just have to and you don't, you don't try to lay it on thick, you know, you know like, like Lisa would like to do. You child of the devil. <laughs> I mean, you do, but you do tell them, to, to back her up here, you do tell them, listen, the reason you think that is because you are aligned with Satan. And he, there is a lake of fire that's prepared for Satan and his angels. And if you do not repent of this sin, you're going to be cast there with Satan and his angels, and you'll spend eternity there. Well, at least I'll get a party with all my friends in hell. Oh, no, 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 no. You misunderstand. And so it's a pleading with them. It's, a, it's an appeal to them to come to their senses. But you realize the whole time, we're going to get to this too, or you realize the whole time that the only way they're going to come to their senses is if God is gracious and God removes the blinders. Because they, and they're being really honest with you. I cannot feel a fear of God. I can't feel a concern about my eternal soul. I just like sin. Yeah, it just, it just demonstrates how dead they are. It's like a corpse. You know, you can... You can chastise a corpse for rotting in front of you and stinking up the room. You can beat it with hammers if you want to. It's not going to move. It's not going to do anything. It can't help but be what it is, which is a rotting corpse. What is required for that rotting corpse is resurrection. Resurrection. That's the only way the lights are going to come on. So the unbeliever, just to wrap it up, our little review the unbeliever is the biblical fool. He's willfully blind. He rejects the accountability uh, to the God of Scripture. That is the fundamental sin, as we said, of Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Or in other words, I reject accountability to God. Back to Stuart's comment. Now, we're going to continue to expose ways that fools reject accountability to Scripture. We're going to learn how to answer them practically. But I want to give you a, just a few practical kind of real life examples that you've probably heard before. Tell me if some of this sounds familiar. I'm just going to make some statements here that sounds like what you might have heard from an unbeliever before. Well, that's fine for you. That's your interpretation. But good men differ on that, and that's just not my view. I don't share your view. 
You've heard, heard that probably. How about this one? My Jesus wouldn't condemn anybody. My Jesus is non-judgmental. He doesn't judge. He just accepts people just the way they are. Or this one. Yes, I'm a Christian, but mine is a personal relationship with God. And I don't owe you any explanation for that. How about this one? I'm spiritual, just not religious. I have no need to be a part of church, some formal religion, accountable to a church, under church authority. I'm good with that. How about this one? Christianity is just really one way of looking at the divine, whoever he or she or it is. God is way bigger than all of us. It's kind of like the elephant, you know? We're all looking at the elephant from a different angle. Some of us touch the elephant and we say, God is like a, a skinny piece of rope. That's the tail. Some people touch the elephant at the leg and they say, God is like a big tree. And some people touch the elephant at the trunk and they say, God is like a big snake. You ever heard that? No. No, never heard that? That's the, the elephant illustration. So far be it from me to put God, the divine, whoever she is, in a box, because there are many ways to understand God, many ways to look at God. We are going to deconstruct some of this nonsense, um, and it'll be helpful. We can't get to every single one of them, because they just, they just keep updating the list of all these <laughs> the unbelieving attitudes, depending on the cultural flavor. What's that? It's called mutation. <laughs> yeah, that's right. This is evolution, right? Right or work. It's a mutation. Yeah. Never gets better. Actually gets worse. All those statements, though, really represent the same theme. They're just variations on the same Psalm 14.1 attitude. So. As we continue and as you become more equipped in a way of thinking, in a God-centered approach, we're going to start seeing straight through the smoke screen in your conversations with unbelievers. We're going to be getting, cutting through all the clutter and all the chatter and all the verb, you know, verbiage of the, of the, that they're giving you. We're going to cut right to the heart of the issue. And I hope that that's starting to happen even early on in this course. But I want to go just a little bit deeper and, and think through the first part of our apologetic approach, the prohibition of Proverbs uh, 26.4, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. To put that plainly, we are prohibited from reasoning with the fool like the fool, okay? Here are a few ways the unbeliever thinks and reasons, okay? We're going to talk about three things if you want to jot them down in your notes. We're going to talk about the unbeliever's starting point. We're going to talk about the unbeliever's self-representation. We're going to talk about the unbeliever's common ground. Okay, the unbeliever's starting point, his self-representation, and his common ground. So first, his starting point. What is, we're, we're saying that the starting point for, the un, for, for all of us, whether we're the believer coming into a conversation or whether it's the unbeliever, the starting point is what? Fear the fear of the Lord. Yes, the fear of God. What is the starting point for the unbeliever's thinking? In other words, what is his standard, his starting point for judging truth and error, right and wrong, good and evil? What is his authority? And there are a number you could say here, but... Themselves. Selves. Selves? Okay. Satan? Satan in the sense of... Um, uh, in the sense of being the, uh, the, the, the fount of all false doctrine. Okay, good. Dad. Dad? Mother. <laughs> Dad and mother? Yeah. Okay. You know, I grew up. That's, that's okay, the good. morality that I was social. <clears throat> so we could call that maybe tradition? 
So the starting point for the unbeliever by which he judges right and wrong, truth and error, uh, moral, immoral, parents, their, their tradition. Daniel. Some would say science or what's, a, what's objective and what they can see. Okay, science. That which, is, uh, that which is visible, it's really their five senses and, and judging the material world. So it's a materialistic worldview. Yeah, good. So science. His own heart. His own heart. Okay. So some of these guys said the, the, the self himself or whatever, the heart, same thing. Um, others. Cultural standards. Cultural standards. Yeah. Some people are just sticking their finger into the cultural wind and seeing which way the wind is blowing. And hey, I'm on that side. They just go with what's popular. Yeah, good. My college professor. Co yeah, boy. Boy, watching, watching a, a new uh, crop of freshman students in a philosophy class, that is great fun. I mean, it, it's, it's good fun, except for the fact that you're so, as a Christian, infuriated. Just to watch this college professor just tool with minds. And all, the, all those young freshmen are like, I'm I'm something in s something so deep here, man. Like 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 I'm I'm so in deep. Like my parents, they have no idea. They have no idea what I'm learning right now. It's so and the and the college professor is just feeding on that. They're like, oh, I'm just shaping young minds, and you just see this little thing going on in that in that in that classroom. And if you're a Christian, you laugh because if you laugh. If you don't laugh, you'll cry. You'll be angry at it. So, so um, science. Um, how about this? Uh, source, source of judging, starting point for an unbeliever. Brett, you mentioned an, a Muslim. You know, the, the, their source of authority is the Quran. So you could throw into that some, you know, it could be a religious source of authority for them. Like uh, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, the Book of Mormon. Um, it could be some uh, tradition. You talked about parents, Chuck. It could be the, the Roman Catholic hierarchy. You know, a lot of really smart people back then, Aquinas and all the rest. And who am I to differ with them? So they've kind of, again, put their own eternal souls in the hands of really smart guys from the past. Um, whether they're religious smart guys or secular smart guys or whatever. Okay? So ultimately, though... Um, the self is ultimately and fundamentally at the heart of all these systems. Why do I say that? Brett? Just desires like they, you know, the, they're like what it says in Ecclesiastes, like the brute beast. They just do whatever they want to do. And anything that gets in their way of doing what they want to do, they kind of fight against that. Anything that feeds their way of doing what they want to do, they go toward that. So even like a really strict, you know, system of rules, um, you know, that basically feeds their desires to some degree because it's an external thing that they can justify their soul, which is important to certain people, while at the same time engaging in their sin. Okay, good. So, um, so yeah, ultimately the self being at the center of that, whatever the system is. Um, yeah, it's just, it all feeds you. It, it, it helps you, to, you figure out some way to get what you need or what you want. Okay, good. I, I see that hand, but I saw some other hands over here first. Yeah, Leah? They have to, um, no matter what system they choose, they have to apply their own reasoning to that system. Okay, so whatever system they choose, they have to, they are, they are still on the throne of their mind, on the throne of their reasoning, 
judging for themselves, am I going to give myself to this authority or not? So for every Muslim, they may be growing up in a Muslim culture and know nothing different. But they don't really know the Quran. Many of them can't even read it. So they're just putting their, hand, their, their life in the hands of other people. But they're making that decision, aren't they? Do you see that, that the self is still at the center? So whether we're talking about the pretended neutrality of the Western secular elite or some secularized philosopher or whatever, or a Muslim, they're at, the same, they're at the same starting point. The self is at the center. That's the lie that the devil told Eve from the very beginning. You'll be like God, judging good and evil. Uh, Seth. Um, I, I would say it comes from a, a feeling of self-control, like controlling what goes on around you and trying to govern everything to work for you and trying to protect yourself in a lot of those systems, focusing on self again and trying to control everything around you and elevate yourself to the seat of judgment and putting yourself above God in pride. Okay, good. Yeah, very, yeah, very well said. So you're putting yourself... In the seat of judgment, as the, as the one higher than any other, you're the arbiter of every, every truth claim. <clears throat> and, uh, and basically, that's, a, that's fulfilling the sense of control and really self-idolatry. Yeah, good. Scott, did you have something? Uh, I was just... <coughs> okay, it's been said. Okay. So what if the unbeliever claims that God, Jesus Christ, is his or her authority? How do you test that claim? You go back to the word. You have to. Okay, go back to the word and do what? Do they, well, do they then submit to the authority of God's word? And if they do, that, that's a good sign. They say, well, it depends on how different people can interpret the word. You know, then they're just throwing more smoke at you. Yeah, the way I, and the way I set up the question was very intentional. I said, how does the, um, what if the unbeliever right. claims that Jesus or God is their true authority? That they're just following God, you know, in a different way than you, but they're following God. How do you test that claim? And you said, go back to the word. That's exactly right. What do you do when you get there? David. See if they fear the Lord. See if they fear the Lord. How are you going to test that? I think that you just... You get now. I don't like that answer. <laughs> <laughs> Kayla said, "Ask them." I don't like that. Answer. <laughs> ask them. Ask them. Oh. <laughs> There's the older sister trying to always control what you're coming, what you're trying to say. Right? Um, well, I think that you just you hold them accountable to what the Lord says and what the Bible says. And okay. If you're not like, no, I'm not going to hold myself to that standard. Then I would say you're probably not a Christian. Oh, how judgmental of you, David. <laughs> but the, the, <laughs> No, look, we're not judgmental in the sense that we're condemning people to hell in what we're saying. We're, we're, we're judgmental in the sense that we're critical. We're, we're, criti we're going we're to critically test claims to, um, to be adhering to the truth of God's word. And so, yeah, you go just like Gary said, just like what you just said. We're going to see, does this person truly fear the Lord? And how are we going to tell if they fear the Lord? Are they actually walking in obedience? Are they pursuing obedience? Perfectly, maybe not, but directionally. Are they, is that the intent in the heart, their heart is to pursue obedience? I see, I see that, but I see a lot of hands coming up over here. So let me get to Joe and Christy, and then we'll come back to you. Okay. I was just saying, if they love their sin, see which sin is still in their hearts that they love. And then if you expose that, and they say, well, no, then you know that. That's, that's really good. That's really good. Um, do you have a biblical passage in mind? 
I was thinking when Jesus, well, Jesus talking to the the guy who said, "What do I do to inherit?" The rich young ruler. Yeah. yeah. So. so you find you find what sin that they cherish, and then you test you test their claim to following the true God, following Jesus Christ in regard to that claim, just like Jesus did with the with the uh, rich young ruler. He said, "All these things I've kept from my youth." Yeah, right. But then he then Jesus found the one thing. Okay, if you, want to, if you want to follow me, if you want to have life, sell everything that you own. Give it all away. Come follow me. And he went away sad because he had many things, stuff, much stuff. Yeah, his heart, um, his heart was attached to something else, not the God of the Bible. So the fear of the Lord wasn't there. He tested it through the word of God. Yeah, Christy. Oh, I was just going to say that the reason that they call you judgmental is because you're holding them up to the judge's standard. If you're standing on the God, the judge's side, right, and holding up this as his judgments and his, you know, his authoritative word, then you and you can always turn around and say it's not, you know, it's not me, it's God, yeah, that is the judge and the standard. And yeah, a very good comment. You you come across sometimes. You can be as sweet as you can be. I mean just sweet as sugar in this conversation and the moment you cross them on that sin all of a sudden you're judgmental why is that it's because you represent the god with whom they have to do and they don't want to have to do with him so yeah your your loyalty you're demonstrating your true loyalty and then they don't like you and they call you judgmental and they call you intolerant and they call you all kinds of really bad names. It's terrible. Rebecca? I was just thinking just what characterizes their life. Okay, you look at what characterizes their life. Um, we we uh, had uh, a couple, um, Chris and Rich, were saying that, yeah, that was re- what was really convicting for them. What characterizes my life? And they looked at if Galatians 5, works of the flesh are evident, and the fruit of the Spirit, here it is. And they said, yeah, that's scary. Yeah, so what characterizes their life? We see in their case, God is gracious to open their eyes. It was just awesome. Awesome. So, but it does say God opening their eyes and for them to be confronted with the knowledge of the truth. So good, good comments there. Um, So the the full starting point is really any authority other than God. Okay. And so we'll wrap this up. The full starting point, anything other than God, ultimately, since he or she is the sole judge of which authority he or she will consider, whether, whether, um, one authority, two authorities, a multitude of authorities, everything all cobbled, cobbled together. I don't know if you've experienced that person with a patchwork quilt of theology. They've kind of taken some from Hinduism and some from, from uh, you know, Christianity and some from science and some from just making stuff up, you know, pink flamingo heaven, you know, that they're going to go to and eat popcorn. and. That's Golden Corral theology. <laughs> Golden Corral theology, yeah. I'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Yeah, it's, it's a buffet theology. So, but but the, the real authority in any of their hearts is the unbeliever. It's the unbeliever, okay? So secondly, let's talk about the unbeliever's self-representation. There's their self-representation. We've already mentioned this, but it has to do with how the unbeliever presents or wants to present herself, what she wants you to think about her. What does the unbeliever want you to believe about her 
reasoning. We already mentioned neutrality, so let's, let's mention some other, you can use synonyms if you want to, or other words. What does the unbeliever want you to believe about her reasoning? And it's, it's based on the common ground she's going to offer you as a starting point for a conversation. But what is, what is her, where does she want you to, what does she want you to think? Yeah, Scott. I would say, like, they want you to think that this way evolution is true. The, what you can see, like the creation kind of a thing, mm-hmm. instead of God creating the world. Okay, and, and they have come to that, they, they want you to believe that they have come to the knowledge of evolution, that it is the best representation of reality based on what? Objective looking at just the facts. There you go. Yeah, so they want you, when, when they're telling you, look, I believe in evolution, it represents, they're wanting to, you to see them, they want to portray themselves as objective pursuers of the facts. I've just looked at the facts. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. And that's what they're after. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've come across a lot of unbelievers who say that, well, I'm no worse than you are. I know that you are not perfect. I know that you struggle with this, this, and this. And sometimes that's a little bit hard to come against because I know I struggle with a lot of different sins and a lot of different issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Um, but that has that, that they, and you can admit that and say, look, my theology tells me exactly what that, or, or, or tells me exactly what that's about. Not finishing sentences all of a sudden. Um, so my theology explains that. And I can, I can show you from scripture, the danger that I was in and the danger that you're still in. And here, let's talk about the solution, the salvation from that danger, which is really the wrath of God. Um, that's good. So uh, let, let's, let me just take one more uh, comment. Chuck, I saw your hand first. Um, life's a journey, and I, I'm on a journey of discovery. <laughs> uh, I believe there's truth out there, but the destination isn't so important as the, the journey. Okay. It's like a church I used to have one of those motivational posters in my room growing up. It says big mountain or something. It says it's not about the destination, it's the journey. You know, like some big, that's... See, I was being prepared to be emergent from the very beginning, but I can't understand what my parents were doing to me. So, so that, that, whole, that whole thing about it's all about the journey, um, what they're trying to do is say, hey, I'm not ready, nor will I maybe ever be ready to make a full commitment to something. So again, it's back to that idea of I'm just trying to be neutral. So what's what's going on when someone is trying to pretend to be neutral? They're trying to they want you to believe that they have no moral You want you want to answer that? No. No, no, it's right over here. Maybe they maybe you guys can tap them into our conversation. Um, so when they're when they're trying to show present to you their self presentation is that of one of neutrality. They're trying to show you. They're trying to get you to believe that they have no moral pre-commitments. When when they're trying to present themselves as objective objective pursuers of facts, they're trying to say I don't have any philosophical biases. That's what they're trying to get you to think. When they're trying to say, hey, look, I'm just, I'm just trying to be rational. I'm trying to be, use my reason. And they are in that, in that comment, they're denying the effect that sin has had on their reasoning. They want mutual agreement to a set of rules for conversation and argumentation that does not acknowledge their sin and the effect of sin on their thinking. 
they, um, they also, their starting point has something to do with their view of accountability. They reject accountability for their thinking as if unbelief and belief is morally neutral. It's not. Unbelief is sin. Okay? So let's go then thirdly to the unbeliever's common ground. Common ground. What do I mean by common ground? Common ground has to do for the basis that you have of having a conversation with an unbeliever about metaphysical realities. Okay, that's, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about common ground. So let's assume that um, all the practical factors for a conversation between two people that are required to have a conversation are in place. You speak the same language. Um, you're, you both you are using words you understand, so it's intelligible to each one of you. Um, all, assuming all that is in place, the idea of common ground is that which is going to set the logical rules for the conversation. It's going to set the parameters within which you have that conversation. Um, so if you start having a conversation with somebody and they all of a sudden want to talk about, um, like, like my philosophy professor, uh, they want to start talking about um, Star Trek characters and assumed imagine, imagination and, and you, they want to have a conversation over an imaginary world. Well, then they have, they have forfeited. They, they want you to accept those rules as their common ground for having this conversation. But you realize that once you're starting to talk about the Ferengi and the Romulans and everything else, you're now into an imaginary world. You're, you're completely outside the bounds of reality. You can't have a conversation on that basis. So imagine you're having a conversation with a self-avowed atheistic evolutionist. You're talking about origins talking about issues of life, of morality, of being. So taking into account the starting point, which is the self, or for them, science or whatever, um, taking into account their self-representation, that they're just neutral or they're objective, rational, on what common ground does that unbeliever want you to engage him in his reasoning? What are the rules of engagement for talking with that evolutionary atheist? No supernatural stuff. No, nothing supernatural. There you go. No supernatural. There are strict materialists, strict naturalists. They don't entertain anything except that which fits into the boundaries of what's observable, repeatable, all of that. Right? What submits itself to the laws of observation. <laughs> what else? Well, well, the fallacy of that is yes. that evolution and, and spontaneous generation does not fit within the realms of their very arguments. So I know, I know. Their foundation is saying. Yeah, you're all of a sudden doing that step there where you're deconstructing their thinking there. That's great. That's, that's exactly right. So, what, other, what, are, what are the rules of engagement? What does he want you to use as the common ground? Well, he wants you to agree with them about that. Yeah, he does. He wants you to agree with him on that. What the rules are, what the what the basis of your conversation is going to be. And and like Chuck said, he all of a sudden at the very start says, "Okay, this whole realm of the supernatural, which is everything to do with your worldview, <laughs> is off limits. We can't talk about that." Ah, how did you do that? Just you just you're the authority now in this conversation and you're just going to set the rules and say, "We can't talk about supernatural things." How, how is that right? <laughs> how, is that, how is that even reasonable? What else? What else is a common ground? Stuart. What's that? They don't want you to use the Bible. They don't want you to use the Bible because, again, right back to the soup, it contains supernatural things. 
Um, also, they, they prejudice the Bible by saying it's written by believers. And believers are obviously biased. Or men. You know, like the evolutionary theorists wrote evolution. They're, you know, that's their belief. Yeah. It's the same thing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny how pride blinds them to that, you know? Yes. They want, they want you to stick within their accepted science. Right. Those are the rules they want you to stay in. They Good. Yeah. They want science as the ultimate authority. That's what they want. But they're denying science. Well, true science. Yeah. So again, we're back to you guys are getting into. Why don't you guys take it in the corner? But you're right. They, that's exactly right. And so even even where so, the science contradicts and and where their own worldview has started to be starting to bind them and tie them up, then they'll escape it by using their autonomous reason. So autonomous reason, at the end of the day, their own self sitting at the top at the throne of all their judgment, that's what they want to, you to accept as the common ground for the conversation. I want you, and they're basically saying this, I want you to accept the fact that I make the rules, I will judge right or wrong in this conversation, and that's the way it's going to be. Do you agree to those terms? Good. Let's start talking about your God or whatever it is you want to tell me. If, they came, if, if it all came off, if the masquerade came down, that's what they'd be saying to you. And then if you don't agree to those terms, then the Christian is the one that's narrow-minded and black and white. <laughs> yeah, you see how ironic it is. But it's just because that is the majority opinion out there, that we're the ones who look like we're, the, we're off. We're the ones who look like we're the odd man out, because we are. We are. It's just we're the only ones thinking clearly. Yeah, they can't see any different. They can't see any different, right. So in obedience to, okay, so this, he wants you to use autonomous reason as the common ground. He wants the rules of science to be the common ground, just the facts. He, he wants the neutral starting point to be anything except the Christian scripture, uh, anything except the fear of the Lord. He wants you to believe him to be neutral, not aligned on the sincere quest for truth and whatever. So in obedience to Proverbs 26.4, back to that verse, we are not going to follow any of those lines of thinking. Okay, if we're going to be devoted to a biblical way of thinking, if the Lord is going to be, if Christ is going to be Lord in our hearts over our reasoning, over our thinking, over our argumentation, over our, our conversation, and he must be, then we're not going to follow any of those lines of reasoning. We're not going to allow those as the common, the common ground, the starting point. We're not going to allow any of that. However the conversation ultimately goes, whether we quote-unquote, win or lose the debate, okay? We know one thing for sure, that we cannot accept his common ground. Why is that? Because the lordship of Christ is over our minds and over our conversation. And our Lord has commanded us. He does not allow us to accept the unbeliever's starting point. He doesn't allow us to accept or agree with or affirm in any way the unbeliever's self-representation. He does not allow to engage the conversation on that guy's common ground. We can't do it. We're not allowed to. Our conscience is bound by obedience to Christ. So that means we're not going to think in the same way. We're not going to entertain any of those other sources of authority. Primarily himself is the authority. We're not going to entertain that. We're not going to converse with an unbeliever as if we agree whatsoever with how he's representing himself to us because we're going to take God's word for how he really is, not his word. Okay? So, for example, we're not going to assume this atheist evolutionist reason is neutral as he wants us to think. 
Rather, we're going to know in our heart that his thinking is biased toward unbelief and truth suppression. That he already has all the evidence, he already has all the facts, and the facts that he doesn't like, he suppresses in unrighteousness. That's what we're going to understand about him. So we're not going to engage him on the common ground of his autonomous reason or his, his rules of science or whatever that excludes the supernatural because his reason is simply a tool of his moral rebellion. We understand that. So we will not disobey our Lord by reasoning on the unbeliever's terms or accept his false claims of neutrality. That is what Proverbs 26, 4 means. Do not answer a, a fool in the same manner of his folly, lest you be like him. We can't do that because we are bowing the knee to Christ. We are going to engage him, however, on common ground. We do share common ground with the unbeliever, don't we? What is it? What is the common ground that we share with the unbeliever? There are a number of answers that could be a number of all right answer. <laughs> Joe. The law that's written on our hearts. Good. The law that's written on our hearts. Excellent. Where do you find that? Romans 2.15. Okay. Good. What's another answer? We're all sinners. Okay. We're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. We all understand that. Yes. Daniel. Everyone has a conscience. Also Romans 2.15. Everybody has a conscience. Good. What else? What's the other common ground? Yeah. God made us. Good. God made us. We are all creatures. We're made of the same stuff. That unbeliever and us, we're all creatures. And that means there are certain limits to us and to them. It means that in him we live and move and have our being. We breathe the same air. We think the same things. We, this is God's world. It's God's world and we're both walking around in it. That's the common ground. The common ground is God and his world. Yeah, Josh. Both absolutely dependent on the grace of God to understand the gospel. Okay, so there's an absolute dependency that both of us have for the grace of God, for the spirit of God to work. That's right. Good. So uh, some other flickers of hands. Yes. We're all accountable to the same God. All accountable to the same God. Again, bringing it back to the law of God written on the heart, the conscience either accusing or excusing. Um, which is going to come to full light on the day of judgment. So they won't be able to deny it then. That's for sure. So good. We're all, you, you've all said everything I, I, just, I kind of wrote down in my notes here. Um, like, yes, Wes. Uh, this, I'm sorry. This, this, the, the, the requirement of God providing us the faith and the regeneration necessity, that all falls into that same the same commonalities, right? Yeah, we, we both share that common ground that like, this is what Josh was saying, the, the dependency that we both have on common, on, uh, on special grace, on sovereign grace to open our eyes, to regenerate hearts, to unstop our deaf um, ears. Yes. So it's, that's, but the common ground for having the conversation is not necessarily that. We're both dependent, that is something we share, but the common ground for having the conversation in the first place I don't need that, un, that unbeliever to be regenerated before I can talk with him. I could talk with him on the basis of the fact that we're both creatures. We're both walking around in God's world. It's God's rules that we're both submitting to. I mean, laws of gravity are both keeping us both anchored down on the earth instead of spinning off into space. Um, uh, laws of logic actually govern our conversation, whether you know it or not. We're all we're using the same tools that God gave us in this universe. It's His world, and we're using His stuff to have this conversation. 
Okay. So then the law of God written on the heart, the conscience, all of those things are common ground that we share. Yeah. Would you say, um, not just the law of God, but, um, but the knowledge of God, would you be able to yes. say his eternal, you know, his Eternal power and divine nature. Yeah. yeah. So that's that comes back to there's one the one other thing I was going to mention, what Calvin called the sensus divinitatis, the sense of the divine, the sense of God. It's it's um what Paul what Paul says in Romans 121 is that they know God. They know him. They don't know him savingly, they don't know him perfectly, they know him through distortion and fragmentation, but they do know God. They know his eternal power, they know his divine nature so that they're without excuse, but they suppress that truth and unrighteousness. So they know him. That's common ground, too. Yeah, the sense that they have of God, the reality of God. So don't answer a fool according to his folly. Instead, verse 5, we are going to answer a fool as his folly, folly deserves, lest he be wise in his own eyes. We're going to speak to the unbeliever using God and his word as the starting point or principles from God's word as the starting point. God is the common ground that we share with the unbeliever and God is the starting point for our thinking. Okay, so that's the way we're going to talk to the unbeliever. That's the way we're going to engage with him and reason with him. Now, how do we direct the conversation with an unbeliever in the fear of the Lord. What are we going to talk about that will provoke the fear of the Lord? And this is where we do have a lot to talk about, but basically you have to know that we can start anywhere with absolutely any subject and go directly to God. Why? Because it's in God that all of us live and move and have our being. That's why I said with Annie, um, Annie was talking about this issue of tolerance or intolerance. That's a great starting point for a conversation. What is the basis for toleration of different viewpoints, different worldviews in any given society? What's the basis? What's your basis? How do you explain why we should be tolerant toward each other? I can explain that based on a Christian worldview. How do you explain that? Because in your worldview, where um, all morality is either subjective or individual or maybe socially determined, um, maybe in a socially determined morality, Tolerance is out the window. That's what happens in a lot of societies. That's what's happening in the Middle East right now with ISIS. They don't tolerate anything. What makes them wrong? So you see, you can start with any subject, go start any conversation, and go directly to God. Because it is in God that all of us live and move and have our being. We have to give answers and reasons for what we believe. So that is um, hopefully going to, by the Holy Spirit, provoke the fear of the Lord in that conversation. Uh, with principles of God's law, the God's gospel, the holy standard of God, but more on that later. I'm looking at the time. Hey, you guys want to go till midnight tonight? Because then I can finish up my notes. Thank you. Great. You guys have nothing to do this week, right? No, no early start tomorrow. So the unbelievable. Hey, wait. We have a holiday tomorrow. So we will go to midnight. Let me ask this. Okay, and, and this actually came up earlier. Um, someone actually <coughs> let the cat out of the bag on this one. The unbeliever is not neutral in his reasoning, but what about us? Are we neutral? No. 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 Why not? Why not? Why aren't we neutral? Holy Spirit. We know the truth of God's word. Right. We know the truth of God's word, so we're not neutral, are we? It, 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 um, 
Is it okay for us to say we're neutral? No. Why not? Because we're not. Because it's a myth. Because it's a lie. We can't tell lies, right? We can't live according to lies. We need to speak the truth. Um, but it is true. We're not neutral. We're on God's side. We're not neutral. We are lined up. We are loyal. We are committed. We are fiercely loyal to God. Okay? So the, the Lord of the side that we're on, he does not want us to be neutral. He says, you set me apart as Lord in your hearts. I, I'm the Lord. And you submit to me. That's not neutrality. <laughs> that is complete submission to our Lord. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. So the psalmist said, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. He's not neutral. We don't want to be following the satanic enticement to be the neutral judge of all things, to be an objective arbiter of truth and error and right and wrong. We're not. We want, we want to agree with Moses when he prayed and asked of God, Exodus 33, 13, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Why? Because Revelation 15, 3 says, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. We have come to see because God has, I think one of you said his Holy Spirit is in us. We understand his word. We've come to see him totally differently. We've come to see him for who he truly is. We can't be neutral. We're, we are not neutral, nor do we want to be. And that means our minds are his, not ours. Our argumentation is his, not ours. Our manner of dealing with an unbeliever or even a disobedient believer, that is not up to us, is it? He determines how we act. He determines what our goals are. He determines the nature, the manner of our discourse. We are never allowed to act autonomously. So in obedience to Christ, we're not going to use the unbeliever's starting point. We're not going to accept the unbeliever's self-representation. We're not going to allow him to establish the nature of the common ground that we share for the conversation. He's not neutral, and we should not be. Okay? Dr. Greg Bonson used to teach his students to repeat that like some kind of a Christian apologetics mantra. He's, basically, he would ask... Um, what two things do we know about neutrality? On cue, they would reply, they aren't, and you shouldn't be. That's really good. The unbeliever is not neutral. You shouldn't be. You better not be. Okay? There's an inherent hostility that exists between a believing and an unbelieving worldview. Um, we, we all know that and understand that, so I'm not going to go into some of the section of my notes on some of that and unpack it um, just looking at the time. But just, just suffice it to say that there is, it's biblical, okay, I've got verses to back it up, that there is a profound and irreparable breach between the believer and the unbeliever. It's resulting in an eternal hostility between the unbelieving and the believing worldviews. And that's why we don't, uh, when we study at their universities, we are very, very critical in our thinking. We are, very, we are running everything they're saying through a Christian worldview. We do not buy it hook, line, and sinker. We are judge, judging everything. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and measuring it up against the standard of God's word. So we can't buy everything. Um, now, what I want to say, that though there is a hostility between those, it's, it's an irreparable hostility. It will always be there. In fact, the only way that's going to solve it is when Satan and his angels are cast into the lake of fire. That's how God deals with it, because he hasn't won their hearts. Um... And everybody who continues in their unbelief is going to follow them. But I want to say this, that even though there's that hostile, hostility, this is very, very important. 
Real, that reality should never, ever lead us to combativeness. It should never lead us to a, a, a rancor. It should rather lead us to compassion. We should speak with unbelievers in an attitude of meekness and of humble boldness. Meekness with the unbeliever. Why? Why should we converse with unbelievers in an attitude of meekness? Why must we? And I'm using the word of should and must and ought because I'm speaking of moral obligation. Why is it a moral obligation that we speak with unbelievers that way? Did you raise your hand? No. You did. You're moving around like a lot, though. Yes. Because we started out in their position and because we're only in a different position because God changed our hearts. Okay, good. That's, um, that's two of the three points that uh, I want to unpack a little bit. Because we used to be in the same position and because we're only different because God changed our hearts. That should, that should create in us a serious, serious commitment to meekness in talking with people. Compassion. Because we know what it's like to be in unbelief. Daniel? God is sovereign and he's in control of that conversation and if it moves us towards a sinful state, we're not doing much for our the testimony and the witness that, that we're providing. Um, we trust that God is in control of whatever is going to come out of that, that conversation and it will do no good to get us riled up. Very, very good. Yeah, so now you're kind of coming to another point in my outline, in my notes here, but that's exactly right. That's exactly right. We, we recognize the true nature of the problem, the true nature of unbelief, the true nature, the true issue of the unbelieving heart. And we know that this is way beyond us. We're just an instrument. We're a conduit of God's word to them. And so it's not about us winning an argument, winning a debate. It's not about us convincing, persuading. That's God's job. It takes all the pressure off. Wes. And if we, I mean, if that wasn't enough, it, it, we would just be following his rules in First Peter, what you explained to us yeah. weeks ago. That we, that's, that's if, we, if that's our foundation, this is what we're going to stand on. That's our instruction. Good. If that's our foundation, if this is our, our our authority, our authority, and Christ is truly Lord in our hearts, then His Word is our authority, and His Word tells us. Engage in that conversation, giving an answer for the hope that lies within you, and do it with gentleness and respect. Respect that person. We don't respect their worldview. No, we don't. We, but at the same time, we, uh, we respect them. We respect them as a person created in God's image, maybe a potential brother and sister in Christ. We respect that person. We, we also treat them with great gentleness. Good. Josh? If you're getting frustrated and angry with them, it's reflects more your understanding of who God is in that moment. It's like yeah. the illustration you gave of how stupid you would look yelling at a corpse, yeah. getting upset at a corpse. Right, uh, right. It's like, you know, you're, you're speaking on behalf of God and you're trusting Him to do something. Um, when you start getting angry, it shows that you're putting some sort of weight on yourself to convince them. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The the anger or the the heated part of that conversation that comes out, it can be that you're not trusting God in this conver- in this in this engagement. You're not trusting Him. You're not seeing Him as the one who resurrects the dead, gives life to, to dead people. Or it could also be on the other side of it. It could be, which is the same thing ultimately. You're not believing, trusting God, but it could also be just your own sense of pride. 
that I really like winning debates. I really like appearing smart in front of this unbeliever. I really like appearing like I have an answer for every single you know, position that they have and I can kind of you know, do the whole abortion debate thing or I can talk about the transgender issue or I can talk about, and, and all of a sudden now it's all about you. Yeah. You know, and that's ugly. Uh, anybody been guilty of that? I have. That's, that's terrible. And your, your anger comes out and it's just like, you've blown it. You just might as well just throw a grenade in the middle of it and just blow yourself up. And <laughs> I'm not sure if I actually mean anything remotely close to that. It didn't make sense. Yes? Well, I like the other thing. And we have, that's where we were at one point. God saved us. We show grace. But it's God's command to, in the Bible, to show in a gentleness and meekness. That's right. That's right. I was thinking about an amazing verse in the Bible in Acts about how you know the Bible says God opened Lydia's heart. Yeah. And really, it's not us. You know, when I think about how how I got saved, it really was God's grace that He opened my eyes to yeah. see. And we don't know whose eyes God is going to open. We don't open their eyes. It's God who. That's right. Me. Yeah. That that uh, that really does um, really embracing that what you just said about the fact that God is the one who opened Lydia's heart. God is the one who opens every blind eye, opened our own eyes as well. Whether we were a little kid or whether an adult or whatever, God is still the one who opens the heart, who opens the eyes. And when we understand that, embrace that as a conviction and actually start walking around in that truth, takes all the pressure off. It helps us better to obey the commands about being gentle, respectful, meek, kind, compassionate. That's how we need to act toward them. That's right. Um, one more, and then I'm going to just mention a couple things before we break. Yeah. Um, so just a question, um, because when you were talking about not combat, being combative and not, not debating, the truth is there is no debate. I mean, there is no debate because God is... This is God's truth. If you're hmm. going to be standing on his side and not answering the fool according to his folly, there isn't a debate. So is it better, maybe, I'm just wondering what the role then of, is it better to ask questions than it is to give statements or give proclamations or, I don't know. You, you do have to do both. And it may, to an external observer, appear to be in a, de a debate but at the end of the day you're right we're not two people with equal footing equal ground and positions we're standing on this mountain called God's truth and we're calling to them and appealing to them we're proclaiming truth to them we're calling them to repent look to God and repent and put her put their faith in him so yes it's not a <clears throat> it's not a debate <clears throat> it's not but it is we are making an argument we are giving a defense, an apologia. There's a, so there is, there is, um, and, I, and I say we're not to be combative when I, and what I mean is like a rancorous combative spirit. And yet there is a sense in which we are engaging in combat, you know, but it's a combat that's beyond this person. There's a spiritual warfare element going on there that we are engaging in because we understand that it's the God of this world that blinds the minds and the hearts of the unbeliever is, is at work to try to, to cloud their judgment in the moment. And yet we have the Holy Spirit resident within us. The Holy Spirit, we have the, we have the law of God written in their hearts. 
the lot, their, their own conscience is on our side. I mean, they're terribly outnumbered. So it's not even a fair fight, okay? <laughs> they're terribly outnumbered. And if we understand that we're coming from a, great, a position of great strength, um, yeah, the, we, we are engaging in a back and forth with them. And <clears throat> so I, I think that you have to use both questions like a Socratic method of drawing some things out, but you also have to make statements. You have to make truth claims. You have to give them propositions and confront their thinking. So it's, it's not, there's not a one-size-fits-all answer to your question. It really does depend on the person you're talking to. Kind of depends on how the flow of the conversation is. It depends on, you know, where you are. I, I mentioned like four things of, of what you're trying to do in that apologetically, in that uh, conversation with an unbeliever. Um, to make a defense. You could start at number, point number three, go to point number one, back to point three, go to four, go to two. It, it, just, it just depends on how the conversation flows. Okay, so it's having that, like I said, we're, we're trying to understand a way of engaging rather than a, than a point by point method. Okay, so good question. Um, let, me, um, let me just mention a few points and I guess, I guess we'll, I got, I got a good bit to talk about, but what I, what I want to emphasize I want to emphasize more, with more, if I had more time, is to just talk about how we have to have meekness toward the lost. We have to have meekness toward unbelievers. Not, not an attitude of pride or arrogance at all. So <clears throat> I'm going to give you three um, statements. You can jot these down in whatever shorthand you're taking notes with. But first, um, why must we, why is it a moral obligation on our part to talk with an unbeliever in an attitude or a spirit of meekness and gentleness. First, we must approach the unbeliever in an attitude of meekness because uh, it's like what Leah said, we remember our former condition. We remember our former condition. For those of you who heard Kayakagi this morning describing in, in Ephesians 2, 11 and 12, I mean, I'm sitting there remembering my former condition. And I know that that was true of me. It's true of all of us. And when we remember our former condition, I got a whole bunch of verses. We're not going to go through them right now. But we remember our former condition. Um, how dare us if we come across in anything but a, but a meek attitude toward them? Because we understand where we were. We have sympathy for their condition, compassion toward it. And it really does govern the way we speak to them. Secondly, we must approach the unbeliever in an attitude of meekness because we want to put attitudes of Christian wisdom on display. We want to put Christian attitudes or attitudes of Christian wisdom on display. Um, we were saved to be conformed to the image of Christ. And Christ represents the wisdom and the power of God. So when we speak with an unbeliever, we speak in an attitude um, of gentleness. And it's a gentleness and a meekness that comes from divine wisdom. James chapter 3. Okay? <clears throat> Third thing, we must approach the unbeliever in an attitude of meekness because we recognize that salvation is the Spirit's work, not ours. We recognize salvation is the Spirit's work, not ours. So conviction of sin, regeneration, fear of the Lord, repentance and faith, persuasion, uh, coming to understanding, all of that, embracing the truth, all of that is the Spirit's work, not ours. Knowing that truth, I think Josh was saying that, I think it, it just has a calming effect because it takes all the pressure away from you when you realize you're involved in God's work, but God's work is not dependent on you. 
God is going to save his people. Um, that's really all we have time for. And I will come back to this and unpack it in a little more detail. Because I really, I know that these are, what I'm saying, those three points right there, are really things you know. Um, and I want to remind you of them to reinforce them for the, the sake of this study and evangelism. That this is the way we need to approach um, the unbeliever in a spirit of meekness.